Turn your Bibles to John chapter 17 as we look at the ninth part of our study on the attributes of God. Uh, if you've missed any of these, Derek has informed me that he is planning to group them up on the YouTube feed, I believe. Um, maybe I misunderstood. It was the Vimeo or the YouTube, one of the two. He's YouTube. He's going to group them up. Uh, and he begged me to tell him how many more parts there are going to be. So I, I believe these will be the last two. We'll be looking at the prayer of God today, and then, Lord willing, next Sunday, the preference of God. Uh, and if I add anything else to it, the Lord adds anything else to it, I'll have to uh, go back to Derek and apologize. But that will give us ten uh, sermons on the attributes of God. Uh, I pray that they've been rewarding to you. And uh, if this were to be a Roman Catholic institution, this would not be the prayer of God that we would be turning to. It'd be that Our Father, that model of a prayer. But this is the actual prayer of God the Son, and this is what I want us to consider here today. John chapter 17, and I am going to read the entire thing, all 26. We'll start in verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son and thy Son also, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, and, and now O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was." Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. You might mark that in your Bibles if it's not already. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for men also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in them and I in thee, rather, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them 
as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to study and preach and teach your word. We thank you, Father, for your mercy, for allowing us to be here this day. We pray for the membership that's missing, Father, uh, with health concerns and whatever it may be, Father. We ask your intervention. We ask your involvement. And, Father, we ask and plead for your mercy in that situation as well. We ask, Father, that even on these days that... Uh, that we teasingly reference as Jonah days. We ask that you give us focus. Help us to remove the distractions of this life, this world, this building, uh, the weather, whatever it might be, Father, that we be fed, that we be eagerly fed, that we would take copious notes, that we might study and meditate upon what it is that you have had for us. For it is not an accident that we're here. Every single person here specifically needs whatever it is that you've got for us this day, and we're so thankful, Father that you would have such concern for your elect. We ask, Father, your blessings on the lost in our lives, Father, that they might receive everlasting life, that they might have salvation revealed unto them even this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The prayer of God. We consider now uh, as an attribute of God his prayer. And, and one might contest, well, this is the Lord's prayer. But we can see in the first five verses he indeed has the authority and he indeed is God, the Son, 100% man, 100% God, as we've been saying through our afternoon studies through his ministry. This is God's prayer. And it follows uh, almost ideally with what Steve had already taught us here this morning about the church and God and all these things being one. We see that Christ is no different. Uh, he's not just a picture here. He is illustrating for us the oneness that we are to have, the oneness that we are to be desirous of. We're not typically permitted to hear or read the words of our Lord as he communed with the Father on all the mounts. One account with the inner circle was taken with him. When the inner circle was taken with him, they were encouraged to watch, and he went a space to pray. He went away from them. And listen to it. In Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, this isn't the transfiguration. We just studied that. If you missed it, it's on all the things that we record on. But this is another mount in which James, John, and Simon Peter were taken to. And it says there, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And that was the, all the church. That was all the disciples. And then he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with, with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father... If this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. 
Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Uh, and this links up well with what we referenced on Wednesday night, because what comes next is the bitter kiss from Judas, as he signifies to the soldiers that came with him that this is he the one that claims to be the Messiah. We'll deal more specifically when we get to this in the afternoon studies uh, as to simple questions we should probably be asking, who then recorded these, this account of what he prayed because they were asleep? Uh, we'll get into some thoughts on that once we get into that part of the study. But we have the privilege here in John 17 of hearing the Son conversing with the Father. And it's no accident. There was no eavesdropping. This was intentional. In context, this play takes place just after the events of John 15 and 16. And you're thinking, of course. But what happens there, the Lord is preaching on his way to Gethsemane. He's preaching on his way to the event we just read about. And in that message, he emphasized his role as the true vine in connecting us to the Father who is the gardener or the husbandman and causing for us to be fruitful, joyful, grateful, and faithful even in the face of persecution that was and is meant for him even to this day. Um, you can go home and read John 15 and 16 tonight. I encourage you. This is just a brief summary, of course, of what he's praying about. But it, but it is a great uh, triumph that he's, he's focusing on and pointing to because he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about persecution meant for him that falls on them. But he's also talking about them being fruitful, joyful, grateful, and faithful, which seems to be kind of counterintuitive to what might actually happen when we go through persecution. You could spend many weeks meditating on the truths of John 17, but here now we merely want to touch upon the highlights and focus on what it is that God prays for as we study this as an attribute. And I have three points, how Christ prays for himself, how Christ prays for his disciples, and how Christ prays for his church. And we'll get in and explain each one as we go. The beginning part we see in the first five verses. Christ prays for himself. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come and the son of man should be glorified. Galatians 6, 14 through 15 says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross, Paul speaking, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. The cross is described here as a, as, a, as a crossing point, if you'll allow me to say it in such a way, as a junction, that the world is dead to Paul through the cross and that Paul is dead to the world through the cross. Should we be doing anything apart from having the cross as that intersection? Oh, what a, a wonderful way to dissect what it is that we're involved with in this world. How is it looked at through the cross? Is this what the Lord would have for me to do? Is this what the Lord would have commanded for me to do? And then abstain from it if, it, if the, indeed the answer is no. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Jesus seems to pray here as if he already stood within the veil, not pleading in agony as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, but speaking with authority with which he is clothed now that his work on earth is done. The great design of Christ throughout his life on earth was to glorify the Father. He came to save his people, but that was not his first or his chief aim. It was his objective through the salvation of myriads of uh, the sons of men to glorify the Father. The great theme of these five verses, the first five verses of the prayer, is that he had finished the work of salvation. 
He says, the hour has come. Now, we know that the cross and resurrection are paramount in terms of the application of salvation and eternal life, but remember that God is not in time or finite such as we are. He is infinite. He is outside of time. The law of time, if you will, does not govern him. He's never too late. He's never too early. And he's never about to miss a deadline. The Lord had built the church by this point. He had glorified the Father by this point. He had made disciples of men by this point. What is paramount to us of his ministry was never in doubt. Would he fail to go to the cross from here? Would he fail to complete the work and announce that it is finished? Men hated the light as they preferred darkness, as we saw in Jesus' own words in John chapter 3. Therefore, their leading him to the cross would be no challenge. It was as sure as done. He wasn't going to have to go and get some angry. They were most definitely going to take him to the cross. Christ prays that the Father will give him again the glory he laid aside when he came to the earth to die. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and the first 12 verses. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own at things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and, the things, and, and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore... My beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, this is similar to what Steve referenced in Acts 17, I think it was, earlier this morning. Every knee shall bow. And we also see again Paul writing of the importance of the oneness from a sermon and, uh, or a prayer in John 17 that he wasn't there to hear. It echoes this oneness that Steve taught of this morning. Note the gives that we see in verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. The Father has given the Son authority over all mankind and really over all things. The Son gives eternal life to those the Father has given him. A man tangles himself up in knots just arguing with that one verse. One of the precious truths in John 17 is that each believer in God's love, uh, each believer is God's love gift to the Son. John 6:37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Could we imagine God the Father uh, giving a gift to God the Son and God the Son saying, Great, do you have the receipt? Of course not. 
This is a gift from God the Father. These are those given to him, and he loved him before the foundation of the world. Therefore, he loved us before the foundation of the world. And it's a gift that will not be rejected, lost, tainted, or destroyed. The second thing we see in this prayer, verses 6 through 19, is that Christ prays for his disciples. There in the audience, the key thought here is sanctification. That is, the disciples' relationship to the world. He spends a lot of time in this prayer talking about how they are in the world but not of the world, how they are hated by the world in verse 14 because of Christ Jesus, how they have to exist still in this world, how they need sanctification, how they will need preserved, to be kept, to be protected, to be sealed, if you will. Jesus said in verse 14, I have given them thy word. And in verse 17, he states that we are sanctified, set apart for God through the word. Oh, how we should cherish his words there in verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. I don't know how one could not see the distinction that Jesus Christ makes here that God does not love everyone and that God does not save everyone and Christ Jesus most definitely here is not praying for everyone. And if he is, who's he talking about being left out? Do we see the conundrum then of what man wants it to say and what it actually says we can understand a great deal about god looking at the attribute of how he prays can we not christ jesus my friends would not pray in a lying manner he would not pray in a deceiving manner and he also would not pray in a false comforting manner let's let everybody feel good father by having this prayer signifying they may or may not have this no he prays in spirit and in truth in the exact manner in which we are commanded to worship. And not only commanded, but it is the only manner in which true worship takes place. That is in spirit and in truth. Sanctifi sanctification does not mean sinless perfection. Otherwise, Christ could never say, I sanctify myself. What is what he says in verse 19. Because he never had any sin. A sanctified Christian is someone who is daily growing in the word and as a result is separated more and more from the world unto the Father. I shared a, an illustration on Facebook this week and we don't do PowerPoints and slides so if you're streaming you're not going to see it and if you're here and you don't follow me on Facebook you're not going to see it either. You have to put up with my petty description. But it's one of our uh, sister churches overseas. They, they illustrated a man going up a mountain and, it, and, and the illustration of him going up the mountain was his studying of the word of God and his pursuit of God. And he is anchored down by a, three or four different things that we would refer to as distractions. But he calls them out specifically as far as what these are that are trying to pull him back down the mountain. And beloved, that's exactly what Satan wants. Let's keep you halfway up that mountain. Let's consider a picture then as Moses is at the top of the mountain. He'll walk away from the mountain glowing as though he'd been in the presence of the Lord because he was. He's receiving the law of God. And halfway down the mountain is Joshua. There were others, but they didn't stay. And when the, the whole uh, gold rush drinking and everything was about to take place, as they were making a golden calf that Aaron says, whoops, how'd that happen? This was all happening down the mountain. Halfway, Joshua couldn't tell what was happening down there, but he could hear it. Moses couldn't hear it. If you go back to the text, he couldn't hear it. Why? He was with God. 
He wasn't desirous of anything, and he wasn't distracted by anything. But Joshua says it sounds like a war. And they couldn't discern whether it was a party or a war or what was happening. Don't stay halfway up the mountain. God's called for us to come to him. The veil been torn asunder. He's called for you to pursue after him. These uh, teaching guides that I've given you in the bulletins, they should be taken to heart because each and every person here must pursue after God. You are not dependent upon Steve and I carrying you up the mountain or any other teacher or preacher for that matter. Each and every knee in this room shall bow before God. Each and every knee in this room has a responsibility to repent and pursue after him right now. This is the prayer of God, that we be sanctified, that we be set apart, that we pursue after and desire after and be one with God, with Christ. Not one in power, not one in righteousness, but one in the church that he has set forth in his ministry that he announces at the beginning has been complete. Christ asked the Father to keep, and this word here in verse 11, when he says for the, he's praying for the Father to keep the disciples, this word keep can also be translated reserve or preserve according to Strong's to keep, to reserve the disciples, to preserve the disciples. This request does not suggest the possibility that the disciples could lose their salvation. Note the full request. He is asking that they be kept through thine own name, that they may be one, that they be kept focused. This is the same word we see in verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou, that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. He's not asking for them to be kept in the world either, but preserved or protected or reserved in the state in which God had willed them to be in. If we are still remaining in this world, we are preserved if we are indeed saved. And we may see horrible things. We may experience heartbreak and, and loss of loved ones and extreme sadness, extreme fear even, depending on our distance from God. But we are preserved. Think of Job. And what he went through. But God said he is mine. God is the one in his holy temples who told Satan to consider him. Because he knew Job was his. He knew Job would not be lost. Job would be scarred perhaps. Job would go through some things. But at the end of it he grew closer. And he had a greater understanding of God himself. Did he not? Notice as well that in verse 15. He asked that they be kept from the evil one. Christ was physically with the disciples and was able to keep them together, united in heart and purpose, separated from the world. Now that he was going back to the kingdom, he asked the Father to keep them. Keep them from the evil one. Reserve them and preserve them. Some use verse 12, and I'll read it in just a moment, as proof that a believer can lose his or her salvation. But a careful reading of the verse proves just the opposite. Listen to verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of them is lost, but the son of perdition. This shows that Judas was never part of the believing band of disciples. Why? Because he was not a son of anything but perdition. He was always the son of perdition. He was chosen. He was called to follow, but he was not redeemed. 
He was not chosen before the foundation of the world. He was chosen to follow after Christ during his ministry. He was chosen intentionally that scripture be fulfilled. This shows that Judas was never part of the believing band of disciples. But is used here. But is a word of contrast, showing that Judas was in a different class from the others. When we refer to those who are unsaved as being lost, it is in reference to them remaining in a state, not finding a new one. In other words, we are saved. Those who are saved, we are saved from remaining lost. Judas isn't lost because he got lost. He's lost because he remained lost. When did the losing happen? Back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, when all was lost in our father. All was lost in our earthly father, you understand, Adam, not our godly father. In verse 11, Jesus plainly stated that he kept all whom the Father gave him. Since Judas was lost, he could not have been among those who were given to the Son. Judas was chosen, yes, he was chosen to fulfill the role of a betrayer. Had he been chosen for eternal life before the foundation of the world, that is exactly what he would have received. Who else was chosen in this manner? The Pharaoh. We read of this, I believe, in Romans 9 where Pharaoh was an instrument of God's, exercising his power. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh to prove to the Israelites that he was God, to prove to the Egyptians that he was God. And, and if we get in deeper to prove to Baal and all the other false idols of the time that he was indeed God, to prove all these false idols liars, God did amazing feats in removing the Israelites from Egypt. Way more than just parting the Red Sea. There's not a thing that happens in Exodus that any could repeat. Try it. Try it. Christians are not of the world, but they are in the world to witness for Christ. We need and should desire his praying on our behalf as he does here. Because he said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. We should desire his prayer because without him, we can do nothing. We have no hope of sanctification if Jesus didn't pray for it, didn't make it possible, didn't call it down and place it upon us in symbolism. And our third and final point Jesus, in verses 20 through 26, prays for his church. The, the, we've seen preservation, we've seen sanctification, and the main theme in verses 20 through 26 is glorification. Verse 22, in the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He does not say, I will give them. Because in the plan of God, the believer has already been glorified. Listen to Romans 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them also uh, he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Again, we can't think of this from finite terms. God is infinite. The actions of God are infinite. The plan of God is infinite. It is not taking place the day you that salvation is revealed unto you. It had already been predetermined before the foundation of the world. Read Ephesians 1, that this was going to happen. And if God said it's going to happen, it's done. 
in terms of God. Yes, in time, Christ Jesus became 100% man along with 100% God. In time, he faced down the temptations of Satan. In time, he bore the cross. He hung from the cross. He was buried in the tomb. And in time, after three full days, they roll the tomb uh, stone away and he's not there. And in time, he reveals himself to the church again. In time, he grants the commission unto the church multiple times, not just once. In time, we see the powerful promise in Acts 1, verse 8. But for all time, it had already been determined it was going to happen. There was never a time it wasn't going to happen. Go back and read the end of Genesis 3. God already knew this was going to happen. Go back and, and read the end of Revelation as we did a couple weeks ago. If not last week, this was never not going to happen. The same tree of life has always existed. The same tree of life was always necessary, was always required for man. This is another proof of the eternal security of the believer. We are as good as glorified as far as God is concerned because we cannot be lost. Christ prays that we might be with him and see his glory. We see this in Colossians 3. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. All of Hebrews 11 is essential to our understanding that though they didn't have, they didn't receive, they didn't experience the fullness of the promises, they had the fullness of the promises. Read Hebrews 11 tonight and see if it's not so. Christ also prays for the unity of his church. Verse 21, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And this is, uh, we really should have read verse 20 as well because he's not just talking about the disciples here. He's talking about those who would believe, those who would be permitted to believe. And he's speaking directly of the church. And how we ought to be thankful that he prayed for the church. Have you ever tried outside the church to get a group of people into one room to agree on anything? It is no small miracle that a church business meeting takes place and we don't all slaughter one another. Because humans do not agree. Look at our politics. Look at our sports. We all have contradicting opinions on any, everything and anything. But for God to pray for the unity of the church, it makes it possible for there to be unity in the church. It doesn't mean that if we ever have disunity or we ever find ourselves without unity that God has left. But it does mean that it is possible for the church to have unity. There's a vast difference between unity, which is oneness of heart and spirit, and uniformity, which is everybody exactly alike. Christ never prayed that all Christians would belong to one world or universal invisible church. They don't need to apply here. He's not even praying to a universal invisible church. He's praying to God in the company of his church. They are physically there. And when he goes to pray in Gethsemane, which we read before, he physically takes a portion of the church on in with him. Not in symbol, not in type, but in reality. And he comes out while they're sleeping because he didn't call them to go uh, in symbolic nature to witness to him praying. He called for them to be awake and to be watching in reality. 
And that is the church, is it not? The church is a reality. It is not a fictitious virtual reality. It is not an imaginary Mr. Rogers neighborhood reality. It is a very real living organism planted in very real geographic locations to do a very real work of going out and disseminating the gospel. And I would add to that in every way possible, which is why we have the works that we have here. Indeed, we are not saved by the church institutions, nor is the church even an institution as man defines it. The church is a living organism of many parts like a body. We would not look at the human body and see many living things, but one living thing of many parts that are in submission to the head. The head of the church is Christ. My hands do not work against my mind. My feet don't walk in opposite directions. They are all called into submission under the head. This is how unity is possible, because we have a sovereign head, that which is Christ Jesus. I am not the head of this church. I'm an under-shepherd of the highest title, under-shepherd. I am called to feed you. I'm called to guide according to the word of God. But I'm not he who saves, and I'm not the head. I have but one vote, just as every member here has one vote. As Steve was alluding to this morning, a, a type of uh, congregationalism. It is not one vote, and it's not just the votes of the men. It is the vote of the congregation that decides. Every Christian who dies goes to heaven because Christ is praying here that this might be so. Consider verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Again, we see that Jesus isn't saying, I pray that they end up here in Gethsemane, that everyone who believes like I do, that everyone believes in me and believes in you because you and I are one, would be here in Gethsemane such as I am. He's not praying from a physical standpoint in this prayer. He's praying in spirit and in truth. Spiritually speaking, he's in the kingdom. Spiritually speaking, he's already fulfilled the work that God had commissioned for him to do. And he prays that we be in the kingdom with him. Without that prayer, we would not be. Who could say that we could contradict the will of God? That if he would not have something to be so, that we could make it so? It's impossible. Consider John 11, verses 41 and 42. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. What happens next? This is the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus calls for him to roll away the stone. After he prays, the stone's rolled away. He thanks the Father for hearing him. What happens next? Lazarus, come forth! Does Jesus not command the dead? And the living, Lazarus comes forth. Lazarus who was dead. Lazarus who stinketh. Lazarus who has no ability in and of himself to decide whether he remains dead or becomes living is now alive. And he's not looking for life support or a ventilator or some kind of IV. He simply follows the command of his Lord and Savior and comes out of the tomb. Did he levitate out? Did he hop out? Was he still bound? Were the ropes removed? He comes out 
All those other questions don't matter. A dead man is alive. All those other questions are superficial at best. Would it be such a miracle for God to remove the, the bindings? For God to have him float out? He made a dead man live. This is who's here praying for the church. He who has command over death. He who commands death in what we read last week to be tossed into the lake of fire. Who can say such a... Causes it to go in the lake of fire as though it's this, as real and substantial as this cup. He takes death and tosses it. That's our Savior. That's our Savior who's made us more than conquerors. Who has left behind, therefore, no more condemnation for the saints of God. He's victorious. We may summarize the major parts of this prayer as follows. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus emphasizes salvation and the gift of eternal life. It can't be received any other way. It has to be given as a gift. Verses 6 through 19, he prayed for sanctification. Something important we need to note here. This is 11.50 a.m. This is in our afternoon study. He's not teaching sanctification. He's praying for sanctification. He's not teaching salvation. He is praying and rejoicing and glorifying God for it has been completed. This is very different than our afternoon study. Where we're at in our afternoon study, he's still teaching these things, giving them a base understanding. And verse 20 through 26, again, he's not teaching glorification. He's praying concerning glorification. These gifts take care of the believer's past, present, and future. Note also the wonderful assurances of eternal security that we see without, because the doctrines of God always work hand in hand. Much like the chain link succession, we believe from church to church to church, the doctrines are also chain linked. They cooperate with one another. We shouldn't be surprised that they don't disagree. We shouldn't be surprised when we study one and find others. Of course they're there. Listen to the five examples that we have here. Believers are the Father's gift to the Son in verse 2, and God will not take back his love gifts. Number two, Christ finished his work. Because Christ did, did his work completely, believers cannot lose their salvation. For us to believe that we can lose our salvation is to believe either God is not as much God as we teach he is here, or two, he's a liar. So he's either weak or a liar, or that three, he's very confusing and doesn't mean what he says. None of those things are true. It's proven throughout his ministry. It's proven throughout his word. Believers cannot lose their salvation because God completed it. Because God made it possible. Number three, Christ was able to keep his own while on earth, and he is able to keep them today for he is the same Savior. Just because he's not physically in our presence does not mean he's a different Savior now. The same who saved us and vowed to keep us is standing at the right hand of the Father as we see at the end of Deacon Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. As an intercessor, running intervention for us, keeping his promises in the only seat of power available to do so by the only one that has access to that seat, Christ Jesus. And number five, Christ prayed that we might be in heaven. And the Father always answers his son's prayer. We see that evidence in John 11. We see Jesus illustrating his gratitude that the Father always hears the prayers of the Son. 
So therefore, if the son prayed, we'd be kept. We're going to be kept because the father always answers the son's prayers. What can we learn from the Lord's prayer? God is a promise keeper by his very nature. And all of his prayer here is a confirmation of the promises made to the elect. I pray that you will consider and, for, and do further study of John 17. What a great blessing it is for us to have the opportunity to see his prayer as an attribute. Let's go ahead and open up our hymnals. The little one's asleep.